Welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Before I get to my first guest, I just want to say one of the reasons I love comics so much is that there are so many different kinds of genres within comic books themselves. Because comic books are a medium and not a genre. And uh, through that medium, we can read a lot of different kinds of stories. Superhero stories, mystery stories, horror stories, science fiction stories, and even stories that are suspense, noir, and thrillers. And my guest today talks about one of his books, which will be coming out in softcover soon. That's Anthony Johnston, the author of the graphic novel, The Coldest City. It was illustrated by Sam Hart. It's in beautiful black and white. It's a spy story set in Berlin in 1989, around the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism. The book came out as a hardcover by Oni Press in 2012, and now to be coming out in May as a softcover rebranded as Atomic Blonde, The Coldest City. Why? Because it is a major motion picture coming out this summer. Now, there are some differences between the film and the book, as Anthony explains in this interview, but each is worth checking out, as you will hear in our interview, an excellent conversation with Mr. Anthony Johnston. Besides being a writer, he is also a fellow podcaster, and it is a pleasure to have him on the show. And we will also talk a bit about his podcast. So, lovers of noir, spy novels, Cold War stories, or just character-driven books, this is for you. You'll want to hear this interview. Let's begin my interview with Anthony Johnston, here now on Creator Talks. Anthony, welcome to Creative Talks. Thank you. Your latest book coming out, or I should say, coming out as a soft cover is uh, The Coldest City. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, The Coldest City itself came out in uh, 2012, uh, and it, the second book in the series, The Coldest Winter, came out in December last year, December 2016. Yes. But we are, uh, yes, we're launching soft cover versions of both books, uh, and we also we are also taking advantage of. Uh, the movie renaming, and we're, re- we're retitling the um, softback of the Coldest City to Atomic Blonde to match. Oh, the, I did not realize so that. Okay. Yeah, so well, well, we haven't really. Um, I'm not sure when this is going to go out, but we haven't really announced it uh, publicly yet. Partly because we're waiting to get you know artwork approval and stuff back from the studio, but that is the plan. Yes, we're going to call it Atomic Blonde subtitle, the Coldest City, just because you know there are so many people who will look for the book. Uh, from the title of the movie and not, you know, have any idea that it was called The Coldest City. So uh, we figured, you know, we should probably take advantage of that. And the story is set around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall and communism. So uh, tell me, who are the central characters of the story and the basic plot? Oh, wow. Uh, Well, um, the central character is Lorraine Broughton, who is a top MI6 spy who is sent into Berlin after the death of James Gascoigne, a young spy who in Berlin who was killed uh, while crossing from east to west and carrying allegedly a uh, list that contains the name of every spy in Berlin on all sides, like British, German, French and Russian. Um, So obviously this is of great value. And the list is when they find his body, there's no list on it. So MI6 basically don't know who they can trust. Uh, The station chief in Berlin, a man called David Percival, has been there for many years and has, in the eyes of London, kind of gone native. Um, 
and the whole thing is very suspicious. They don't know who they can trust, and Lorraine has never been to Berlin. She has no ties to the city, so they know that she can't, you know, there's no bias going on there. And so, yeah, they send her into Berlin to figure out what's going on. Of course, what they don't realize is that this is right at the end, if you like, of the existence of East Berlin. You know, this happens uh, just under two weeks before the Berlin Wall is due to fall. And uh, so she lands and immediately finds herself in a a hotbed, a powder keg of social unrest and, uh, you know, sort of uh, communist activity, uh, sort of anti-communist activity in East Berlin. Uh, And there's a defection that still is uh, that David Percival still wants to happen of uh, the guy who supplied the list in the first place. And that all goes horribly wrong. And the whole thing is just, you know, just completely falls apart. And the book is actually begins the day that Lorraine arrives back in London uh, and is being debriefed. And so she tells her story of exactly what happened over there, how it all went so terribly wrong, resulted in so many deaths and, you know, the complete failure of her mission, essentially. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, th- and that's the uh, the setup for the book. What is so gripping about this spy thriller and generally spy thrillers is the conflict is brought down to the human level. You know, it's the manipulation of people through misinformation, the subversion that makes this uh, particularly tantalizing. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I like to think so. Yeah, um, it is all about the people, um, you know, John le Carré probably the greatest uh, espionage author of our time, uh, has always said that his books are essentially about the people. They're not about the bureaucracy. You know, his books his books sometimes get a bad rap because there have been TV and movie adaptations of them that have been quite dry. Um, and his books are somber, certainly, there's no question, but they are not about bureaucracy. They're about the people who get caught in the gears of bureaucracy. Uh, and the effect it has and the effect that being a spy has on them. Um, now, we don't delve quite into that sort of depth in The Coldest City in the Coldest Winter. Uh, you know, they're not sort of psycho profiles because we don't have the the breadth of psychology that you can really get into in a big, thick novel like Le Carre does. But that is definitely an element of the graphic novels, and they are very much about the human cost of espionage and certainly of the dying days of the cold war and when you look at who's on the side of right there's no clear line separating good and evil right or wrong what's right is depends on which side you're on um and as for double yes. agents uh, what's right is what's best interest of their personal survival yeah and, and that's i mean i think any good spy thriller has to take that attitude uh you know and because that's the truth of it that was certainly the truth of the cold war um and remains the truth to this day it's the old there's an old saw that uh you know every villain sees himself as the hero of his own story because nobody or very few people anyway i would imagine uh actually think that they are evil (laughs) and that they are deliberately carrying out evil acts just for the sake of it everybody believes that they are justified in the things that they do or at least figures out a way to justify it to themselves and live with it um so yeah to me that's just that's just life uh that is an approach i take in my espionage fiction but frankly it's an approach i take in all my fiction um you know i i always try to avoid mustache twirling mm. 
outright, ooh, I'm so evil uh, villains because I just, you know, I just don't think they're the slightest bit realistic. Um, real people don't act like that. And I think villains, for want of a better term, uh, fictional villains who d do have that justification and who actually have a good argument for why they're doing something, I think it's just much more interesting and compelling. I mean, one of the greatest villains in fiction of the last 40, 50 years is Hans Gruber in Die Hard because he's so charming and he's everything that he says, you can see like, actually, yeah, if I was a little less moral, you know, if I didn't have quite such strong ethics, I could absolutely see myself following this man you know he's everything he says makes perfect logical sense it just comes down to a question of your personal ethics and morality um and i think and that's one of the reasons why he's so well remembered i think you know it's such a great portrayal by the late alan rickman and then uh, he's lives on in people's memory as a great and charming uh, villain because he was completely or you could see that he felt completely justified in what he was doing and i think you could say that of any great villain in uh, in fiction yes I, that brought to mind negan in walking dead he's you know, a despicable person but he's fighting to survive he's leading a group of people and sometimes you laugh at his sick humor but that's what makes such a compelling character is that there there is something about his personality there's a slight kind of creepy charm to it that you almost you can't wait to see him come on screen exactly it humanizes people mm -hmm. yeah now the coldest city was uh you had art by sam hart and it was in glorious black and white and of course the characters are not black and white at all they're they have shades of gray in their personalities and what their, their motivations are and i think the absence of color at least for me it helped spotlight the dialogue even more and brought more of that human element to the story so you focused on the characters dialogue between each other and it's a true Cold War story, so it's not warmed by color. Was that the reason for your choice of not using color and just going with black and white for the illustration? Um, I, I guess maybe subconsciously it was it was a choice partly born of just wanting I wanted it to feel like a noir. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, you know, the sort of the great classic cinematic noirs are black and white. Um, but also being European and Sam uh, Sam is also British. He just lives in Brazil. Uh, he moved there when he was a child, but he is he was born and raised in Britain. And we both grew up reading black and white comics. Um, we didn't have, you know, big, bright, four-color superhero comics over here like you guys did uh, in North America. And so to us, black and white comics are not unusual. Uh, you'll find this uh, across Europe. Uh, Spain and Italy both have particularly, um, you know, thriving scenes uh, especially in the underground of black and white comics and have done for decades as well. So it was partly that just because to us, black and white is and shouldn't be that unusual a choice. You know, it is a completely valid way to make comics. Uh, it may be unusual to North American eyes, but not so much to us. And also, yeah, the other thing was just that I wanted it to be a noir. It wasn't, it wasn't deliberately the whole, yeah, sort of, necessarily making it feel cold like the cold war but i did want it to have a noir feel uh, which sam does you know brilliantly and uh for that i just thought that a black and white book would suit it best you know would just achieve that aim most effectively did you have a penchant for the cold war spy genre before writing the coldest city 
Uh, as a reader, yes, absolutely. Um, this was the coldest city was the first Cold War spy fiction that I'd written. Um, it was only the second overall spy fiction that I'd written. Actually, the first was I did an arc of Queen and Country Declassified, Greg Rucker's series. Uh, he asked me to do uh, one particular arc for a character. Um, uh, and that ended up in, if you look for it, if you're looking for it, it's in the volume four compendium where all the, the declassifieds are collected of queen and country. So, and that was, uh, writing that made me realize, cause like I said, I'd always read spy fiction, but I'd never, for some reason, I just never sort of thought, Oh, you know, I'll write it as well. And writing that made me realize I just had the best time writing that uh arc of declassified and i thought oh yeah yeah i i you know i want to do this for something of my own as well um and uh and so that was why that was why when i uh, the whole story about how i came to write the coldest city is that i had been writing a lot of stuff for other people work for higher comics and uh video games for quite a while and you know working flat out and I got to a point where I could feel that I was going to burn out if I didn't do something. And so I put aside, I made sure that all my work was sort of finished, you know, met all my deadlines, and then basically put aside two months in the summer of, when would it have been? 2008. Yes, 2008. Um, uh, to write this, to write something for myself. I put aside two months and I said, I'm just going to write a graphic novel for myself. Uh, and then once it's written, then I'll worry about trying to sell it, trying to publish it, whatever, trying to get it drawn, you know, but I need to write something for myself that is, that I'm just writing for the love of it rather than writing it because I've been commissioned to do so just to stay sane. Uh, and that script is what became the coldest city. Um, and obviously, you know, the irony being that I've now, it's now the book that I've had the greatest success with, uh, was something that I just sat down and wrote, literally wrote a book going, I want to write a book that I would like to read. Uh, and I don't care if anybody else likes it. I don't care if a publisher buys it. I just need to write this book. And yeah, so ironically, that was the coldest city. Um, and so the reason I decided to sit down and write a spy story, as I say, I'd written the arc of Queen and Country Declassified, had a great time writing it and thought, yeah, I want to do more of this. And so when I came to think, OK, what, what would I want to do for my own spy story? I just gravitated towards the Cold War. I grew up during the Cold War. I watched the Berlin Wall fall. I watched it. Well, I say fall. I watched it, but was torn down on live television uh, when I was how old would I have been? 17 years old. Uh, on because yeah, it that was broadcast live across the whole of Europe um, when that was happening. You know, I remember watching the people dancing on top of the wall and you know hauling one another, uh, West Berliners hauling East Berliners over the wall and stuff, and breaking through the the gates and the checkpoints. It was amazing. Um, partly because you know, and anybody who grew up in the Cold War can attest to this. When it was going on, it was hard to believe that the cold war would ever end it was you know it felt because it had gone on for so long already it felt like endless it felt like this is just the way the world is and this will never change and it will never end and the iron curtain will always be there and berlin will always be a divided city and germany will always be a divided country and that is just the way of the world now and so when suddenly that was no longer the case when almost literally overnight that changed 
it was uh, earth shattering. It was absolutely monumental. And so th the memory of that event uh, combined with the fact that I'd grown up reading Cold War spy fiction from, and I mean that from, you know, the sort of lightest uh, sort of caper James Bond stuff to, you know, much more serious John le Carre and Len Dayton novels and stuff. Um, and Ian McIntosh's wonderful Sandbaggers TV series. Um, all of these things combined. And I was, was just like, the Cold War was, for spy fiction, was such a rich period. It's such a rich vein to mine that I'd, I just felt naturally drawn towards it. And then, as I say, the memory of the events of the Berlin Wall falling, again, just kind of, kind of drew me towards it. I thought, well, okay, so if I'm going to do spies, clearly I want to do Cold War. That just, you know, that just feels right for me. And if I'm going to do Cold War, where else can you set it other than Berlin? I mean, really, you know, the best place you can set a story set during the Cold War is in Berlin. And so it just kind of, it all felt natural. It all gravitated towards this story in Berlin set around the time of the fall of the wall. Um, and then I had just had to figure out, okay, well, if that's the setting, then what's the story? How do I make a story that uses that to its fullest and is, you know, and is still a compelling Cold War story that deals with the end of the Cold War? Um, and so, I mean, you know, I don't want to make it sound like the whole thing came into my head fully formed because I assure you it didn't. <laughs> you know, there were weeks and weeks of planning and outlining and plotting and what have you because the book and the plot is quite complex. Um, but in terms of what I wanted to do, you know, in broad strokes, it just all kind of came together very naturally. I gravitated towards this theme and this setting. When I read the book and I, I put it down, I thought back to my experiences growing up during the Cold War. And I do remember, too, watching on television people standing on the wall, jumping up and down. And I, I didn't think I'd ever live to see the day when the wall would come down. I thought, like, right. this is going to be around forever. And I thought back even further. And I don't know if you had this experience growing up, but I remember back in first grade, which would have been, for me, like around 1970, up until like the mid-70s, we would have drills in the school. We would get underneath of our desks in case of, oh, in yes. case of like, like that's going to help. In case Maybe. of nuclear attack, yeah. Exactly. We, we didn't do that in <laughs> Europe. Okay. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, actually, because uh, I, I was in primary school a little later than that, but not much later. But I don't even recall people you know, sort of maybe five, 10 years older than me saying that they did it either. So I don't think that was really a thing in Europe. I suspect, to be honest, because we, we're so close to Russia uh, and because obviously, you know, the, uh, Britain itself being such a staunch ally of the US, I suspect, you know, there was a feeling of like, what, why bother? You know, <laughs> if a nuclear, if a nuclear war does kick off, Europe is glass, basically. Europe is just toast uh, in any scenario. So, <laughs> you know, and no amount of hiding under a desk is going to help you with that. <laughs> I guess that I mean, was we, we laugh about it now, but <laughs> yeah, it, but it, it was a real. Well, yeah, you know, oh, it, yes. was a, it was an absolutely real fear. We grew up, you know, it, there's a saying that our generation grew up in the shadow of the bomb, and that's absolutely true. We genuinely thought that any at any day, at any given moment, we might suddenly find ourselves in a nuclear war, you know, and that did not seem like an outlandish prospect at all, which is terrifying. 
there was a film on television too, made for TV that I remember. I watched it back in college, and it was uh, I think it was called The Day After. Ah, uh, yes. That was very chilling because it seemed very real. At least to me, it did at the time. Yeah. I have watched The Day After. We didn't get that over here. I have watched The Day After. What we had was a series called Threads, which is, and, you know, I don't I don't mean this to sound like a game of one-upmanship, but if you think The Day After is chilling, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Threads was, oh, my goodness. It was the sort of program where you would, if you, if you sat and watched it with your parents, your parents would very quickly realize that they'd made a terrible mistake in allowing you to stay up and watch it. Uh, and then the next day at school, you'd be comparing nightmares with your friends. I mean, it was mm. absolutely terrifying. Uh, just, I've never watched it since. I, I, I can't bring myself to watch it. Maybe you feel this way about the day after. Um, I can't bring myself to watch Threads again because it, scared me so much as a child it had such an effect on me that i i partly don't partly i worry that it will have the same effect on me now as an adult and i don't want to put myself through that uh, or it will actually be horribly cheesy and you know not scary at all and then i'll have nothing it'll taint my memories of it so i deliberately have never watched it um, but at the time, yeah, I remember, and it is still, I mean, you can look it up online. It is generally regarded as one of the most horrific series ever broadcast on UK TV, not because it was outlandish or gory or sensationalist, but precisely because it wasn't because it was so incredibly matter of fact about what would happen if a bomb was dropped in the middle of England, you know, if like a 30 megaton bomb or something landed in, on, in the middle of England. I will look that up, and I may watch it when I'm feeling brave. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, this is quite a recommendation <laughs> you gave me there. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, stories like that and spy stories still resonate today because we still face threats, albeit somewhat different. I mean, yes, there still could be mutual annihilation between two superpowers, but now we have more players in the game with weapons of mass destruction and even terrorist organizations, and that battle is still being fought on a front of uh, spying and intelligence gathering, much like it was during the Cold War. That seems to be right now the most effective way of deterring it instead of just like throwing a lot of soldiers at it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I mean, in terms of fiction, that's why John le Carre has managed, is still producing, you know, excellent, excellent work because he has managed to stay relevant uh he has been quite aggressive throughout his career of not looking to the past and deliberately sort of updating his works to keep them contemporary and deal with whatever the global situation is now and i think you know there are lots of uh good modern spy authors who've done the same uh olaf steinhauer's tourist novels are i mean they're a little bit pulpy um but they do deal with that sort of reality of the modern uh the modern spy world if you like uh, and there are plenty of other authors doing it i've just written i literally last year took some time out and wrote my next novel uh which is with my agent at the moment and that is a modern contemporary spy novel and does the same thing yeah deals with the fact that it's not just us against russia anymore and there are so many other players and so many other ways of conducting espionage and you know soft warfare as it were um, you know, through uh, cyber warfare and uh, hacking and, you know, sort of digital espionage tools, which, you know, it seems like 
these days we hear a new story about that sort of thing well and drone warfare as well you know we hear a new story about those sorts of things almost every day so i think it's i think it behooves good espionage authors uh if you're not explicitly writing a period piece to keep abreast of that sort of thing yeah uh, and anybody who thinks that real you know either in the real world um spying has decreased since the cold war is unfortunately very very wrong if anything it's probably more intense now especially post 9-11 than it ever has been it does tend to keep me up at night besides the threat of nuclear war now we have terrorism uh the threat of uh someone attacking the internet because people are so dependent upon technology now. Oh, yeah. with, I mean, yep. just to get your work done during the day, whether it be this or be my, my day job, it is so dependent. Think back to the, in, in the Second World War, the most effective saboteurs were the, you know, the SOE and the resistance agents and what have you, and the people from who trained at Camp X in Canada, who basically went all over Europe blowing up train supply lines and electricity generators and cutting power lines because that was the vital infrastructure of its time. Uh, now, if you did that, it wouldn't have anywhere near as much of an effect. But instead, what you can do instead is buy yourself a black market hacking program from the dark web for 600 euros or whatever and, uh, you know, take down half a country's Internet instead. And suddenly that country will lose you know, I don't know, $30 billion worth of trade over 24 hours or something. Uh, and you do that enough times in a year, and that can bring a country to the brink of financial ruin. It's uh, it's such a crazy, different world in terms of the details, but the the underlying agenda, I don't think has really changed that much. You know, it's uh, you've still got those saboteurs blowing up the infrastructure. It's just that they're no longer literally people in fields with TNT, uh, you know, <laughs> blowing up train lines. Instead, they're 16-year-old genius hackers in uh, Ukraine or somewhere, um, yeah, taking down a country's entire online infrastructure. And soon we'll be able to buy our own drones. We can now, and we can spy on each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, what a world, what a world. But getting back to something safe and comfortable, like the Cold War. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I interviewed Alex DeCampi a while back, and uh, she was reading a lot of Cold War books and defector case studies to prep for her book, Mayday, um, mm -hmm. an espionage Cold War story set in the 70s. And she really enjoyed the topic anyway, and that's why she wrote about it, much like you wrote about uh, the Cold War. Was there anything just prior to writing that you immersed yourself in? to get in the right frame of mind? Um, I did rewatch all of The Sandbaggers. Um, Greg Rucker uh, very mm -hmm. kindly uh, gifted me a box set of the the TV series, the, the entire, like, I think, is it two, three seasons of The Sandbaggers? Uh, and I did watch all of those over the course of probably about a month or six weeks uh watch the I mean, and i say the entire seasons but of course these are british tv seasons so there's only maybe six episodes per season uh so it sounds like a lot when i say three seasons but actually it's, it's like the equivalent of one american season of tv um i did watch all of those over the course of yeah like a month six weeks or something um partly because i wanted to have that feeling of sort of gray men in gray suits controlling you know the lives of people who are actually on the front lines doing the dirty work um uh, in the coldest city uh, which i think you know i think we achieved 
Um, but also because I hadn't seen them for ages and they are fantastic pieces of fiction. You know, it's such a great TV series. Um, but yeah, I'd say if it was informed by more than, you know, by anything, it was by that. Um, I did also watch rewatch the Harry Palmer movies, you know, the, the Ipcrest file and funeral in Berlin. And, uh, did I rewatch billion dollar brain? I think I did, but you know, it's not so good. Um, so I watched those as well, but yeah, it was, I just kind of immersed myself in my favorite spy fiction, but it wasn't to, it wasn't to get sort of plot pointers as it were. It was more, yeah, just for the atmosphere and sort of, you know, reminding myself of what life was like back in the cold war of the, the 1970s and 1980s, uh, so that I could get a, a feel for it, um, before I then started on, you know, sort of details of the, of the plot and the outline and what have you. And now your book has been turned into a film, Atomic Blonde, by Focus Features. Yes, yes, starring Charlize Theron and, uh, sorry, Theron, I keep mispronouncing her last name, um, and James McAvoy and John Goodman and Toby Jones and Sophie Boutella and Till Schweiger and James Faulkner, and it's directed by Dave Leach, who was one of the co-directors of John Wick, and the director of cinematography is the same guy from John Wick and so is the film editor and it is just it's insane the the talent list for this movie is just nuts um and a lot of that is to do with Charlize because it was her production company that optioned the book back in well before it was even published I think it was I think they originally published it in sorry originally optioned it in 2012 a month or two before the book was published or maybe even before then come to think of it um it was quite a while ago uh, because she knew that it would be a good vehicle for her. Um, and so, you know, she's sort of pushed it through development for all these years. And then we got really lucky, of course, in terms of timing, because just when she was ready to make it was when she come off the back of uh, Mad Max, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. And then, of course, but that was before Mad Max Fury Road had come out. Like she was already starting to push coldest city atomic blonde as it became to be known uh you know sort of through the process before mad max had gone on release and then of course mad max went on release and it was such a huge hit and had such an impact on her profile as to her sort of viability as an action star that suddenly it became very easy to <laughs> to attract people to a uh, Charlie's Theron starring action movie, you know, like because um, up until Mad Max, the only action movie she'd really done was Aeon Flux, which mm. you know she was not bad in it, but it was not a great movie. Um, and then after Mad Max, pretty much everybody in Hollywood wanted to work with Charlie's <laughs> on on an action movie, um, and you know we just like i say we got really lucky with the timing i mean i say lucky maybe this was all a grand plan that charlie's had had all along um you know i that wouldn't entirely surprise me but i think really there was a, a you know a good dollop of of good fortune and good timing in there as well uh, and so yeah we attracted an, an amazing director uh, an amazing cast uh yeah it's just the whole thing has been a whirlwind. Uh, and then we had the um, festival debut of the movie at South by Southwest just a couple of weeks ago. Now, were you consulted during the production of the film in any way? Uh, I gave notes on the early drafts of the screenplay uh, and then on a rough cut of the movie, very early rough cut of the movie. 
so I, I have a producer credit. But day to day, uh, no, I wasn't involved. I did a set visit. I went out to see the set for a couple of days while they were in Budapest. Um, and they were very gracious about keeping me informed about what was going on, you know, keeping me up to date with developments. Um, but on a day to day basis, no, I wasn't, uh, you know, I, I wasn't really closely involved and, you know, they didn't have any sort of uh, obligation to do so. I mean, the fact that they kept me informed at all, uh, was, you know, sort of beyond the remit of what they were contractually obliged to do, but they were very keen to, uh, they were very keen to sort of stay true to the spirit of the book. And you now people who know the book and who have seen the trailer <laughs> may think that they are very, very different things. And in some ways they are. You know, this is the reality is that the film is a different beast to the book. Um, it is much more action filled. Anybody who's read the book knows that there is not a lot of action in it. You know, it is mostly sort of low key espionage and Cold War tension. Uh, the movie is not. The movie is very hot in that sense, in that there is loads of action. Um, you know, it's very sort of brash and in your face uh, where the book is not. However, the character of Lorraine and to an extent the character of Percival, less so, but the character of Percival as well. And certainly the characters of people like uh, Kurtzfeld and Waddell, renamed Grey for the movie, and a few other minor characters like that. They're basically the same. You know, they may uh, say different lines, but their characters are essentially the same. And actually, there are some lines that are lifted directly from the uh, from the book. And the overall structure of the movie and even whole scenes are the same as the book. So it is oddly faithful to the book, more so than I certainly expected it to be. I really thought that it would be, you know, not faithful at all. Um, and it is actually very faithful in many ways. Um, but it has this focus on the action, which the book does not. And so, you know, on the surface, yeah, as I say, you may look at it and go, oh, this is totally different. But actually, it's not. If you look below the surface, it's quite similar. Um, however, all of that said, uh, this was a question that came up many times, and especially while I was doing that set visit in Budapest. People kept coming up, kept coming up to me, Charlize and David both were like, um, we've made a few changes. Uh, are you, you know, sorry if that offends you. And I'm like, I am not offended by this at all um, for two reasons. One, I have done adaptations myself. I have adapted many prose works into comics. So I know how the process works. Uh, I understand that you have to make changes. You know, you have to write what suits the medium that you're working in best and if that means changing something if that means combining two characters into one if that means changing dialogue or cutting uh, you know a subplot you have to do it um so having been on the other side of the process already you know i am just i'm completely understanding that that has to be done and i don't get offended by it as a result um the other thing is that my favorite movie is blade runner now i don't know if you've ever read do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the book that Blade Runner is based on. But it is 95% nothing like the movie Blade <laughs> Runner. I mean, they are so different in mood, in feel. You know, they share a few characters, and that's pretty much it. Um, and yet they're both great. It's a great book. And like I say, Blade Runner is my all-time favorite movie. Um, so 
I've always had that sense of being able to separate, you know, an original text from an adaptation. Uh, and within the the best example that I can give, and I mentioned this, what you know, to people who were worried I might be offended, uh, the best example I can give is the Born Identity, uh, based on Robert Ludlum's novel. Uh, again, the novel is has almost nothing in common with the Matt Damon movie. Um, I mean, they are so incredibly different; it's uh, it's almost laughable, and yet it's a great novel. And those movies are great, great movies. You know, those movies basically revitalized the espionage genre in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, because Bond was moribund at the time. Um, and, you know, the Born Identities remained a truly great spy action movie. So, again, you know, great book and great movie, even though they're completely different. And so my attitude has always been to this and to any adaptations of my works is you go and make the best movie you can uh, because that's what you do. I do this. I make graphic novels. I made the best graphic novel I could. Now you make the best movie you can uh, because that's what I want to see out of this at the end. I don't care how faithful it is. I don't care if it replicates everything from the book. What I want is to see a great movie come out of it. Um, and... I think we got lucky because, well, not lucky, but, you know, I, as I said, we had good timing. We attracted an amazing, uh, you know, talent of uh, array of talent for the cast and the production. And they did exactly that. You know, having seen the final cut now, I can say they really did exactly that. It is an amazing movie. Um, it's uh, some people have described it as a sort of female John Wick, which, you know, is true. There's a little bit more plot than John Wick. But, you know, it is that level of modern, really sort of intense action movie. And if that's what you like, you will love this movie. Um, if you're looking for something that replicates the book 100%, you won't find it. But then I don't think you'd find that anywhere. And I think that would be a terrible movie, to be perfectly honest with you. Because, like I said, there's almost no action in the book. Um, so I don't think I'd want to see that myself. I'll read it, but I wouldn't necessarily want to watch it on screen. So, yeah, we're all... And Sam was there with me at the debut. And we, we just, you know, we both walked out of the screening with massive grins on our faces. Um because yeah it is it is an amazing movie and i can't wait for people to see it i am so glad to hear that i was i was wondering what your impressions would be if you had a chance to see it and you know once they pay their money you know <laughs> once focus pays their money it's there to do with as they wish and to have given you a chance to give them some feedback consult with you and i couldn't agree more tell a good story you have what two hours two hours and a half to condense this down into a movie you have to make some changes that's just the reality of it and as long as you're entertained it's a good story i always look at those films as something different from the book anyway i don't expect the same thing and in fact that would be kind of boring to me if it were the same it's like going yeah. to see a band play covers and play them exactly as the songs were played on a record yes that'd be so that boring <laughs> I, I have a long-standing. I do a uh, one of my podcasts that I do called Thrash It Out is a heavy metal podcast where a friend and I discuss heavy metal albums, and that's my long-standing uh, sort of great unified cover version theory, as it were, is exactly that. That if you're going to do a cover version, you should either somehow do it better than the original, you know, which is almost impossible in most cases, or yeah, do it in your style so that people hearing it who have never heard the original will think will not realize that it's a cover. They will think it's your original song. 
Uh, and so, yes, I feel exactly the same way about adaptations. Take it, sure, base something on it, but make it your own. Uh, you know, make it so that it is a great work of art within the medium in which you are best versed, in which you are working. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that's your that's your attitude as well, because that's completely mine. And as I say, that's what they've done with this movie. Have you ever seen a film adaptation of a novel that matched it closely? I can't even think of one. I guess the Harry Potter movies are quite close. And you could argue some of the Lord of the Rings that, you know, the Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. not the Hobbit, but the Lord of the Rings movies are fairly close. But even those do take liberties. Um, and yeah, as you say, I'm not sure I'd want to see one to be honest because you have the book there's that old lovely old i think it's raymond chandler quote where somebody asked him what he thought about uh hollywood ruining his books and he just pointed to his bookshelf and he said they haven't ruined anything they're all still there <laughs> i'm paraphrasing but you know oh, yes. was, yeah. you get the spirit of the quote and i've always <laughs> thought that was a great quote because it's absolutely true like i say some of my favorite movies are based on books and are nothing like those books and that's okay now, we did mention at the beginning, uh, you have a prequel that came out in December that was The Coldest Winter. Yes. Um, also in black and white, different artist. Would you suggest that people who have read neither start with the prequel? Or does it really matter? Start where they wish? Um, that I would say start where you wish. Uh, the books do stand alone, um, which was a very deliberate choice. I mean, I, you know, I wrote The Coldest City first for a reason. Um, so if you are thinking that you're probably going to read both, then you should, you know, I would say start with the coldest city. Um, but if for some reason, you know, you, you want to try something, I mean, the coldest winter is, it continues the feel of the coldest city, but it has, you know, a different protagonist. It focuses on David Percival, the station chief in Berlin, when he was a new spy in Berlin and wasn't yet the station chief. Um, it has a bit more action. Uh, it has more of a sort of embedded in the Cold War plot because obviously it takes place in 19, the winter of 1981. Um, or is it 1982? Sorry. Uh, so, you know, seven or eight years before the Berlin Wall fell. So it, it is much more immersed in the sort of, you know, right in the thick of the Cold War. So it is different, but it has, you know, much of the same sort of feel. It is complex and deals with you know again the sort of the, the people behind uh the masks in this uh you know in this cold war game of espionage um but yeah crucially they do stand alone you can read either book first and it won't spoil the other book for you um the only thing it will spoil if you read coldest winter first is that you'll already know david percival um Whereas, obviously, if you're on the coldest city first, you'll meet him there for the first time. But really, that's not too much of an issue. Uh, part of the reason that I decided to do that for the coldest winter was because in the coldest city, David Percival is kind of an ass. Um, you know, he's not a very nice person. Uh, he's, in fact, a downright, you know, dislikable person in the coldest city. And part of the reason that I wrote the coldest winter the way I did was I wanted to explain how he got that way i wanted to show why he is a little anyway why he is that way and how he sort of started and then you can see the contrast with where he ended up and get some idea of you know his journey during the 10 years that he was stationed in berlin i did want to get a chance to talk to you about your comic work it's fairly rare for you to write a superhero story 
Um, you have read some. You've worked on my, one of my favorites, Daredevil. And honestly, I haven't read those books, and I do want to read those. He's one of my favorite characters because his powers allow him to overcome and exceed his disability. And yet, he's not invulnerable. Uh, he doesn't have super strength. In fact, I have a piece of art here in my office. And I bought this not knowing that you had written the books. I haven't read the book either. It's a cage match. And uh, oh, I have yes. a piece, piece of art by Sean Chen here sitting right next to me. Yes. And I was like, oh, how about that? As I was researching, I was like, son of a gun. <laughs> yeah, Cage Match was, uh, I mean, yeah, I co-wrote Daredevil for a couple of years with Andy Diggle uh, when he took over from Ed Brubaker. Uh, Andy is a very old friend of mine. Um, and uh, neither of us really, you know, has written that much superhero stuff or we, neither of us grew up reading superheroes like i say we didn't grow up with that sort of stuff we grew up reading black and white british comics and especially 2000 ad which andy was actually editor of for a few years as well um back in the the late 90s early 2000s um what the cage match was actually I mean, when we wrote daredevil was a really downer period for daredevil it was a really grim <laughs> uh you know noirish down at heel book he was at his lowest ebb cage match however was a fill-in issue <laughs> during our i think third or fourth story arc where we had to stagger the publishing schedule because of the big shadowland crossover event that took place while we were writing daredevil um and we just had a month spare where there would otherwise be no daredevil title and so steve wacker who was editor of the daredevil title at the time asked me to uh, pitch a fill-in story uh, that was out of the main continuity not out of continuity necessarily but that didn't take place you know during this whole lead up to the shadowland event and so i pitched cage match which is a very deliberate throwback to the 1970s 80s uh sort of you know one-shot team-up comics where yeah daredevil and luke cage fight one another in a boxing ring and that sounds like an insane idea which is partly why i wanted to write it <laughs> uh, i also insisted that luke cage wear the silk shirt and the tiara yes uh, excellent that, that was a con that was a condition of me writing it <laughs> but yeah that was you're right i don't write a lot of superheroes um but i do like i'm glad you like devil Dog because daredevil's one of mine and one of the reasons why i said yes when andy asked me to go on board the the daredevil is one of my favorite marvel heroes and that's partly because he lives in that street level world of the marvel heroes uh, who have always been my my favorites out of all of the sort of marvel pantheon um because you know and i mean the guys that ironically are now all the sort of marvel tv guys you know guys like daredevil luke cage uh, iron fist and uh, jessica jones as she came to sort of join that group uh shang chi was another favorite of mine the master of kung fu i did a shang chi miniseries during the spider island event uh, and i would have liked to do more but unfortunately i couldn't um so all of those sort of that level of heroes uh, misty knight and um silver sable and the shroud and paladin were starred uh, in a uh, miniseries another miniseries i did during shadowline called blood on the streets um so yeah all of that kind of level of people that group of heroes are the people that i find the most interesting in the marvel universe because they are surrounded by people who are practically invulnerable uh, and yet these guys are very vulnerable they you know if you if you shoot them in the head they will die uh, and that's not true 
of a fair number of Marvel heroes. You know, <laughs> there are a fair number of Marvel and DC heroes for whom that is not the case. Uh, and I find those heroes very difficult to relate to. Whereas, you know, uh, guys like yeah, Daredevil, if you shoot him, he will take the bullet. You know, Iron Fist, for all of his power, if you shoot him in the head, he will die. Um, okay, Luke Cage, that's not, he's bulletproof. But, you know, the for the most part, these people are vulnerable to that sort of thing. They don't shoot lasers out of their eyes. They can't teleport somewhere. Um, you know, they are brawlers. And I don't know, there's something about those kind of heroes that appeals to me just more than the people who are really, really high-powered. Um and so that was the area that I played in for a couple of years at Marvel. But that was, uh, I mean, not that I would never do it again, but, you know, I did it for a couple of years and then sort of backed away because there was other stuff that I wanted to do more, I guess. And one that you did was uh, Wasteland, one of your own books. Oh, wa- Wasteland I actually started before. Ah. Uh, Wasteland started in 2006. It ran for almost 10 years. Um it ran, in fact, no, it did run for, what am I saying? It did run for, uh, was it, ten, oh, oh, you know, I'm trying to think when I finished it now. My mind is a blur. But it ran for almost 10 years, certainly, over 60 issues. Um, and uh, it's just that, obviously, now it's all collected and the compendiums uh, are, so compendia, uh, are, uh, you know, being solicited. I'm not sure if they're actually solicited yet or if they're about to be, but, you know, I don't think it's a trade secret to tell people that, that we're putting out big compendio volumes. Where there are the five hardcover volumes are all available now as well as the trade paperbacks. So it, it might be easy to look at that and assume that it's a more recent series. But, yeah, it actually started back in 2006, uh, and it just took us a long time to get through the whole series. But that's because it is 60 issues, and, uh, you know, we were at times swimming very much against the tide of, you know, trends within comics. Um, I mean, there aren't that many series, frankly, that hit 60 issues without renumbering, which was something that I had to really insist on, you know, and push against a few times to insist that we did not do some kind of relaunch at issue 32 or whatever um, to try and spike sales for two issues because I knew that in the long run it would hurt us. Um, But yeah, Wasteland is my... uh, big epic post-apocalyptic uh well epic yeah you know sort of road trip story uh which i co-created with christopher mitten who drew the first 27 i think issues or 28 issues uh and then also uh came back for the final 10 issues to finish out the story at the end 50 to 60 um and it is uh yeah it is just a, a massive post-apocalyptic sprawling epic that takes place a hundred years after the end of the world uh, and follows our heroes. The main our main heroes are a, a guy called Michael and a woman called Abby. Who Michael is a scavenger. Abby is uh, a sh- town sheriff. They meet up in sort of you know coincidental circumstances based around a machine that speaks a forgotten language, and uh, the machine claims it can show them the way to uh, the fabled land of Ariyasi which, according to legend, is where the world ended. That's where the end of the world began. Um, And uh, as if that wasn't enough, Michael has strange powers that he cannot explain. He doesn't remember where he came from. He doesn't know his parents. He doesn't even know how old he is. And he has these strange powers where he can move things with his mind. And he finds that Abby, who also has strange powers she can heal people with the power of her mind 
and neither of them have ever met anybody else like them before. Uh, and that's what brings them together and starts them off on this big, long, thousand-mile journey across an irradiated wasteland uh, that used to be America to try and find the truth of what happened 100 years before. And those will be out as a compendium. I guess you can buy trades now. You can get trades now. You can get there are eleven trade paperbacks and there are five hardcovers right now. But we are also doing yes two giant uh, compendium volumes. You know issues one to thirty and then thirty one to sixty as massive uh, soft cover volumes. Uh, and as I say, those are if they're not solicited now, they will be very soon. So yeah, just keep an eye out for them. And I did want to ask you a bit about your video game writing. I don't know much about video games, but for those who are interested, I did want to give you a chance to talk about your work on scripting video games. Uh, yeah, that's that's my sort of my other career, um, my parallel career, if you like. I kind of r- divide my time fairly roughly equally between um, comics and video games. Uh, if you're into video games, uh, you would probably have seen my work you're most likely to see my work on, depending on your age. Haha. Um, I wrote uh, the first Dead Space game, uh, and then I also wrote a few other Dead Space games, such as Dead Space Extraction, which was the rail shooter on the Wii, uh, the mobile, the iOS and Android Dead Space game, and uh, Dead Space Ignition, which was a, a strange comic puzzle game hybrid that was on uh, xbox live arcade i also wrote the original dead space comics which were drawn by Ten- ben templesmith uh, and a graphic novel called dead space salvage drawn by christopher shy uh so yeah lots of dead space stuff but then i also uh co-wrote zombie u which was a launch title for the wii u um with gabrielle schrager for ubisoft montpellier she was my uh, sort of co-writer and narrative director on that uh i wrote oh i worked on um shadow of mordor uh the lord of the rings game that came out a couple of years back and won every award going um and i was i was just one of us you know i was one small part of a large team of writers on that game but that was a lot of fun um i wrote the ios drag racing game uh called csr racing and its sister title csr classics which you may have played or you know readers uh, listeners of yours may also have played um which most people don't even realize is written, but there is writing in it. You know, there is character dialogue in it. There is a story and, and I wrote it. Um, and, oh, what else? And a whole lot more besides. Um, there's a whole bundle of, yeah, you know, titles and stuff that I've contributed to. And I did a bit of early conceptual work in Dead Space 3, but I wasn't really involved in that. Uh, oh, I did a VR title called The Assembly that came out earlier this year for, you know, sort of VR headsets. Um, and the latest thing I did was I was a narrative consultant on a game called Blackwood Crossing, which comes out on April 4th of this year uh, from a company called Paper 7. And that is a sort of indie narrative game. Um, very hard to describe. I, I can't wait for people to see that because it's a very unusual game um, that combines narrative and puzzles and emotional storytelling uh, and some beautiful artwork and yeah, there's nothing else quite like it, so I can't wait for people to see that because it's going to be the reaction is going to be really interesting. So it's that's a very varied, <laughs> much like my comics. You know, I I, uh, I like to do a lot of different stuff um, because I don't know. I, I just sort of it's more interesting to me to uh, to do a whole variety, a wide variety, excuse me, of uh, of different titles, and so I do that across games as well as comics. Well, when you're not writing and working on other projects. 
What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Uh, rest and relaxation. Hang on. Rings a bell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, my, my R&R is mostly well, – I read a lot. Um, and not all of it is for work. You know, I do read for pleasure as well. Um, I, uh, I love a good novel. I love a good graphic novel. Um, and I, you know, and I do watch a fair amount of movies and stuff. And again, not all of them are for work. Sometimes I just like to kick back and, you know, do that a regular thing, watch a TV show, whatever. Um, but I also, in terms of sort of, uh, non-media stuff, uh, my R and R is all focused around my dogs. I have two big dogs, lurchers, uh, which are greyhound, greyhound crosses. Mm -hmm. Um, and I live in a very rural part of Northwest England. Um, so, uh, my partner and I, we take our dogs for long walks. You know, we, uh, if we get some time and the weather's good, we can walk for 10 minutes and literally be on a moor in Northwest England. So, uh, you know, from our house. So, or we can drive half an hour and be in a hundred acre forest or something on some old country estate. So, yeah, we, we do that a lot. You know, we travel around the country uh, or sometimes just nip out for, you know, a couple of hours from the house. And, uh, yeah, I walk our dogs because our dogs love to walk. And, uh, you know, we, we don't have kids, but we do have dogs. So we sort of, you know, they're our family. So we, we like to get out and about with them. <laughs> and also, incidentally, uh, if people want to see pictures of them, go to my website and follow the links to social media, things like Facebook and Instagram. Um, they are filled with pictures of my dogs, like probably 80% of all the things I post on Facebook and Instagram are basically pictures of my dogs. So <laughs> <laughs> everyone loves those. Exactly. Yeah. How can you go wrong? <laughs> Do you have an Island book and not a film or an album? I mean, let's just assume that on the Island, there's no electricity, your cell phone and tablet are dead. What would be the one book that you would want to have with you? Oh, that's a tough one. That is a very tough one. I struggle um, with it too. <laughs> yeah. I am um, see not so long ago I would have said vert by Jeff Noon um, because that was I've read that book so many times that book was an absolute sort of you know shot to the head for me uh, I love it so much and Jeff Noon remains one of our best living SF writers in my opinion terribly underappreciated um, but these days it kind of it goes head to head. That was before uh, William Gibson wrote Pattern Recognition. Um, now I'm a huge Gibson fan and have been since the you know since the early days of his Sprawl trilogy, uh, which is great, but is you know is a little bit dated now. But Pattern Recognition remains my favourite title of his. It is so good and it's almost timeless. There's something about that book that even though it's now nearly ten years old, may even be ten years old. Um, it doesn't feel it at all. It feels like a modern book. Uh, something about, you know, an incredible feat of prose to write something that had no genuine science fiction elements at all. And yet, no matter when you read it, it feels like it's taking place in a couple of weeks time. Um, that's And again, that's one that I've read over and over again. It's an extraordinary book. So it's almost impossible for me to choose between those two, to be honest. Um, so I might just knock it on the head and say a compendium of the collected, uh, Sherlock Holmes stories instead, because <laughs> <laughs> then I've got lots to get through. Yes. Well, as we're wrapping up, I just wanted to also mention your most excellent podcast, Unjustly Maligned. I listened to a couple just to kind of get a feel 
for your conversational style, and I just got sucked in, and I think I've listened to almost all of them. Why don't you tell us about oh, wow. that podcast? It's great. Uh, well, you can find it at ump.fm. Uh, yes, it's called Unjust Unlined. It's part of the incomparable podcast network of pop culture shows. Uh, it is a discussion show where I invite a guest – uh, and I asked them to talk about something that they believe is unjustly maligned. So, for example, uh, we've had uh, some of the early guests we had were people like we had Lee Alexander come on and talk about Twilight. Um, uh, Will Wheaton came on and talked about the original Tron movie. Uh, Moises Chuyan talked about The Wizard which was the old movie, video game movie with Fred Savage, which you may remember. Uh, we've had Alicia Schmeiser talking about the Dragon Riders of Pern uh, trilogy and how unappreciated they are uh we uh, just recently had uh jason snell's been on a couple of times he runs the network he's been on a couple of times first time he talked about stargate is g1 uh again being like underappreciated so more than maligned strictly uh, and then the second time talking about the micronauts comic books from the 1980s mm-hmm. um uh, just the episode we did last week was um, a, a listener actually who wrote in saying that he wanted to, you know, do a subject. Uh, Philippe Soldean from um, uh, Norway or Denmark? Oh, sorry, Philip, I've completely forgotten where you're from. Somewhere in Scandinavia, um, and he was talking about The Matrix Reloaded, which you know is a very maligned movie by a certain subset of people. Um, it's not all movies. Uh, we also had uh, Corey Cassoni came on and talked about Monopoly. Uh, his thesis being, if you think Monopoly is boring, you're playing it wrong and you're not actually following the rules because most people have never read the rules. And and so they play it wrong, basically. They literally are playing it wrong. That's a great episode. That's one of my favorites, that is. Um, uh, Recently, Liz Miles uh, came on and talked about... Oh, actually, no, recently she talked about the Master of the Universe movie, (laughs) the He-Man movie. But before that, she came on and talked about Dragon Age 2, uh, the video game. Um, we also had uh, what are, we've covered a couple of video games actually. Yeah, um, comic books, video games. You know, we we try and cover all loads of different aspects of pop culture, and not just pop culture. We even had uh, we've even had a guy come on and talk about Napoleon, the real life Napoleon, uh, defending Napoleon's reputation and his legacy, <laughs> which was a fantastic episode. Um, and of course, we've done the whole Star Wars prequel trilogy. In a series of three episodes, we did all three episodes, one, two, and three, which were, again, great episodes. I do it partly because there is so much negativity out there online um, and that I I just get very tired of it. And so the show was created partly to counteract that, to sort of spread some positivity and say to people, look, you know, you've heard of this thing. And you've, all you've heard is that it's terrible. But here is somebody to tell you that actually it's really underappreciated and maybe you should give it another look. Um, so there's that aspect of it. But also, I just like talking to interesting people. Uh, and there's nothing more interesting than people talking about things that they love and they're enthusiastic about. So, yeah, I, I really enjoy doing it. It's uh, we, we, we were originally weekly. I had to back that off to now we publish once every two weeks because unfortunately i just didn't have the time (laughs) to record weekly anymore um but uh yeah it's i have a lot of fun doing it and uh you know we have a sort of a good loyal group of listeners who are i like to think very open-minded and uh you know even if you don't even if you disagree with the guest hopefully you'll get a good you'll listen to a good conversation we'll get a good, good conversation out of it 
Well, you can count one more loyal listener. That's me. Um, oh, I, thank you. <laughs> I've listened to the Star Wars episodes. I've listened. The Monopoly was one of my favorites. Uh, that was. I it really was a so good episode. Wasn't much. It? <laughs> oh, I learned so much about. Them. I never knew those things. And another one of my favorites you mentioned was. Uh, we actually didn't mention this one. It was Tin Machine. I'm talking about David. Oh Bo. yes. And because I saw Tin Machine back in '91. Oh wow! Actually, were, he was in Philly. David Bowie and Tim Machine was in Philly. Yeah, so yeah. That was that oh, was the fantastic. it was the best because it was the closest I'd ever been to someone in a concert. I was only a few rows back. Wow! And, and it was see, David Bowie of all people. <laughs> you could see the sweat dripping off of him. That's how close That's I was. I was like, oh my god! So it was yeah. That was that was a great episode because I had not listened to that CD. I have the original CD for a while, and I pulled it out and I listened to it after listening to the episode, and I was like, oh man, this is really good. And yes, I ne- it is. I never knew it was maligned. Honestly, I was just a fan, so I didn't. Oh, yeah. No, it was really maligned. No idea. No idea. Because I always enjoyed it and I enjoy it even more now. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on. It's been just delightful and uh, looking forward to The Cold City, which will be out softcover May 16th. Is that right? You know better than me. <laughs> um, that's um, is that what it says? If that's what it says in the solicit, then I'm sure me, that's correct. Let yeah. me double check. I did say yes. Call the city five sixteen in soft cover. Right. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on. It's been wonderful. And that wraps up my interview with Anthony Johnston, the author of The Coldest City and also of the prequel The Coldest Winter. And expect that soft cover to be coming out on May 23rd, now titled Atomic Blonde, The Coldest City. So since our conversation, that book is now available and it has been rebranded as such. So if you like these kinds of stories, I think you're going to really enjoy this a lot. And the movie sounds great and I definitely want to get in line to go see that one. And that will be in theaters everywhere on July 28th, Atomic Blonde. Look for it. And hey, if the author endorses it, well, that's good enough for me. I'm sure I won't be disappointed. And it'll be something a little different, a little variation on the graphic novel itself. And check out Anthony's podcast, Unjustly Maligned. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did enjoy talking to Anthony. And let me know what you think. Give me your thoughts. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. Shoot me an email. You can do that through the interwebs. Go to my website, creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com. There you can fill out an email and let me know what you think about the show, suggestions for future guests. And remember, most importantly, so you don't miss an episode, subscribe through iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, and of course, Stitcher. And all the content is free. And if you have time, take a few moments, go into iTunes, Stitcher, rate and review the podcast. Constructive feedback is always welcome. More guests coming up soon in the days ahead. Some that are pros in the business for years and some that are up and coming and trying to fight their way into the business. And I'll even have a returning guest. That's it for now. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.